This morning's topic will be the United States in Bible prophecy. Now next week we'll be looking at some other topics that Revelation deals with, with the scarlet woman riding on the beast, and we'll be looking at Babylon and some of those things. But today we're going to be looking at what the Bible says, if anything, about the United States in Bible prophecy. Now before we begin, how many of you are thankful to be an American? Is there anyone thankful to be in this country? I see some people raising two hands, right? I've traveled to many different countries, and not even all third world countries, but even after going to places like places in Europe, places in Africa, places all over the world, I'm always happy to come home because there's just something about America. God's blessed America in such great ways, and we have so many blessings to be thankful for. And so today, as we look at our topic of United States and Bible prophecy, let's see if God had anything to say about this nation, and what does the Bible predict for our future. Before we begin, why don't we be, bow our heads for prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be gathered together as your children. Lord, we're here because we want to know your word. Lord, you tell us that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that those who understand and hear and keep the things that are in it will be blessed by it. And Father, we want to receive that blessing that you have for us this morning. So Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would give us wisdom. Lord, help us to see things more clearly than we've ever seen them before. And Father, may we see the way that you're calling us to walk, that we can walk in it and draw closer to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. United States and Bible prophecy, it's hard to imagine that the Bible would talk about so many great nations and leave out a nation as great as America. Now some of you could say, well maybe that's just because we're biased, because we live in America. Maybe the Bible doesn't really have anything to say about it. Well, what we're going to look at this morning is the book of Revelation. I know, surprising, but we're going to look at Revelation chapter 13. And I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Now, Revelation chapter 13 is going to be the main portion of our study, and we'll have a couple times where we jump to a few other verses, but mainly if you open to Revelation chapter 13, we're going to be in it most of the morning. So we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 13, and we've already started looking at this chapter. Do you remember that? We started looking at this chapter actually last Saturday morning when we were looking at the first beast that comes up in Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, and beginning in verse 1, we're just going to recap a little bit of what we've studied already, and I'm going to read it to you and tell me if you remember this, okay? Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John speaking, he says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet was like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Now do you guys remember talking about this last Saturday morning, this beast that was rising up out of the sea? Remember we were looking at Daniel chapter 7, and we saw the beasts that were represented there. There was the lion with eagle's wings, right? There was a bear that was raised up on one side. Then there was a leper with forehead with eagle's wings, remember that? And then uh, the last beast was kind of a nondescript beast. And we realized that Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 were describing the same beasts, right? Notice how many of the, the pieces of the beast here have the exact same imagery as Daniel chapter 7. Now this is just review, but we just want to make sure for those who missed it that we see it. Notice what it says the pieces of this animal were in, Dan in Revelation chapter 13 verse 2. It says that it looked like a leopard. 
It had the feet of a bear and the mouth of the lion, and the dragon gave it its power, its seat, and its great authority. Now we looked also that this beast has how many horns? Ten horns, right? And in, Revela or in Daniel chapter 7, the last beast had how many horns? Ten horns, right? There's very great similarities between these two beasts. And we've already identified this beast as, well, who did we identify it as? Notice what we found last time we studied this together. We just want to recap, make sure we're not pulling anything out of the Bible that's not really there. But we found in the Bible that this beast has seven or eight characteristics that we noted last time together. And we saw that this beast would arise out of divided Europe, right? And we've talked about this several times now. It arises out of the ten horns, which was divided Europe. Rome wasn't conquered, but it divided, right? And we realize that this is what happened here. It, it arises out of divided Europe. The little horn comes up and divided Europe. When did Europe divide? 476, right? You can look in your history books. This is a common date. 476 is when Europe divides. And so we realize if this nation comes up out of divided Europe, it has to come after what time? After 476, right? And it uproots three kings, we're told. It uproots three of the horns. And we realize that this power uprooted the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli coming up to its power. Number four, it blasphemes God, right? Now, what was it to blaspheme God? What are the... Take the place of God, right? That's what it was. That was one of them. And what was the other one? Forgive sins, right? Someone who claims to take the place of God, someone who claims to forgive sin. Now, it also persecutes God's people, and this was a persecuting power, and it reigned in its strongest point until it received the deadly wound for 1260 years. It also was a universal religious power and a strong political power. Now, who was this that we identified? It was the Roman Catholic system, right? The Roman Catholic Church. And we realize that the Roman Catholic Church reigned from the time, that 1260-year period, very precisely from 538, when, they, when the Pope came in to fill the power vacuum in Rome, until the Pope was taken captive in AD 1798, in February 10th, by the French general Berthier. And so we see that exactly as this prophecy has said, it's been fulfilled. And that this first beast is none other than the Roman Catholic Church. That's what we find in Scripture. Now, just to reiterate, we're not talking about the, we're not talking about the people in the Roman Catholic Church. They're wonderful, God-fearing people who love the Lord. But we're talking about the system that they set up is a system that's against God and not one that ultimately leads to God. They're claiming to be in the place of God themselves. Now, what's very interesting is after this beast is described, this beast is described in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and notice what happens. After this beast is described as coming off the scene, notice what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9 says, as we get ready to go to verse 11. Notice what Revelation chapter 13, verse 9 says. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall also go into what? Captivity. Now, did the Catholic Church lead people into captivity? Millions, right, is the estimate, conservative estimate that people have given. And so they say that those who lead into captivity will also go into captivity. Were they led into captivity? That's where the Pope died when Berthier took him off his throne, was in, died in captivity. Now, it also says that he who kills with the sword must also be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, as the Bible is describing the decline and fall in the application of this deadly wound, 
Notice what it continues on to say. Notice what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11 says. Right after it finishes describing the first beast, notice what it says. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a what? Like a dragon. All right. It has two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. Now the question that we're looking at now is we know who the first beast was, right? The Roman Catholic Church. But the question is, who is the second beast of Revelation chapter 13? We realize Revelation chapter 13 tells us that there's another beast that would come. And I want to ask you a question. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? A kingdom, right? Or a, a power, a political power. And notice, we, how do we get that? Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, talking about the four kingdoms that were coming up, which we see is the exact same succession of Revelation chapter 13. And it says, the fourth, fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom on the earth. And so we realize when the Bible is talking about a beast coming up, it's not using a derogatory term for them, right? An animal or a beast simply represents a kingdom or a nation. Now, we've seen that consistent all throughout Bible prophecy, right? This is what we've seen in Daniel chapter 2. This is what we've seen in Daniel chapter 7. We continue to see it in Daniel chapter 8 and 9. And all throughout the Bible, we see that a kingdom is represented by a beast. And so when Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us that it, or Revelation chapter 13 verse 11, I'm sorry, tells us that it sees another beast coming up from the earth, what is it that's coming up? Is it just another animal that's walking around? No, no, no. There's another nation that's arising to power. Now, notice the secession here that's found in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, tells us that the, last, the first beast is starting to fall away, right? And the last beast, or the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, starts to fall away, or its power is taken away, in the year 1798. Now, after 1798, or around the time of 1798, around the time of the captivity of the first beast, then the Bible writer starts to say that something else is happening. Now, does this help us understand a little bit of the timing of when this beast would come? We see if the first beast was falling out of power around 1798, and the Bible writer looks and he sees something else happening around that time period that helps us to know that the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 is a power that would arise around the time of 1798. Is that, that's pretty simple logic in understanding what Revelation chapter 13 is telling us. Now we're going to look at a couple other identifying points of the, of the second power in Revelation chapter 13. And we're just going to go straight to the Bible, right? We don't want to be speculators. We don't want to just put our own thoughts into what Scripture says. But notice that the Bible gives us a few other characteristics that help us to understand who the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 is. Notice what the Bible continues on to say. It says, Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the where? Now you might say, well, why is that significant? I found another beast coming up out of the earth. Now I want to ask you a question. Where did the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 come from? Was it from the earth? It was from the sea. Okay, that's very interesting. And we find that, right, in that Revelation chapter 13 verse 1, that I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now can you get much more opposite than that, right? You have the land is the opposite of the sea. Would you agree with that? If you're not on land, you're in the water. 
And if you're not in the water, you're on land, right? This is what the Bible is talking about. So we see it's a, it's a directly opposite rising than the first beast. In other words, it doesn't come from the same location as the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. Now, we also looked at together, when the Bible talks about a beast rising up out of the sea, that's prophetic language, right? It's a symbolic term telling us about something. Notice what Revelation chapter 17 verse 15 says. It says, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now this is what we found when we were studying through Revelation chapter 13 verse 1. That when the beast comes up out of the sea, we see that it's coming up out of a populated area, correct? Now when you think of the Roman Catholic Church, which is who we saw that that was coming up out of the sea, did they come up out of a populated area? Have you ever heard the term, all roads lead to where? Rome. Does that sound quite populated to you? So we see that the first beast comes up out of a populated area, but if the second beast comes up not out of the sea, but out of the land, it's the opposite of a populated area, right? Which means that it arises in an area which is relatively unpopulated. Could you, could you see that that's what scripture is telling us here? Now this is interesting. We find that this nation is rising around 1798, somewhere in that time, give or take. It arises in a relatively unpopulated area. But notice that the Bible continues on to give us an understanding about this beast. It says, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had what? Two horns like a lamb. Now we might be thinking, well that's, that's interesting. The last beast had how many horns? Ten horns. But I want to ask you a question. Is there a difference between the horns of this beast and the horns of the last beast? Now you might say, well, these are horns like a lamb. Well, that, that could be, which signify it might be a young nation, which, you know, if it rises in 1798, that's relatively young in comparison with many other nations of the world. But also there's one very great noticeable difference between the horns of the first beast and the horns of the second beast. Notice with me. Let's just read it together. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. But notice it doesn't stop there. It says, and on his horns were what? Ten what? Ten crowns. Now, when we look at the horns of the second beast, are there any crowns on the horn of the second beast of Revelation 13? Now, I want to ask you a question. Who wears a crown? A king or a queen, someone involved in the monarchy, right? Now, was the, the system, were the ten nations that the Roman Catholic Church come out of, that they came out of, were there kings in those nations? Absolutely. Europe was filled with monarchies of that time, right? Now, what's interesting to note is that the beast rising up, the second beast in Revelation chapter 13, is a kingdom that is, is one that actually has no monarchy. Could you, could you agree with that? No crown, no king. In other words, there's political power, but that's not a kingly power that this nation possesses, but it's simply more of a, a free power, and we'll talk about that in a little bit later. So we see that it arises after around 1798. It arises in a relatively unpopulated area, that there's no monarchy. But does the Bible give us any other characteristics that would help us identify this nation that's coming up in Revelation chapter 13. Notice how it continues on. Revelation chapter 13 
and verse 12. And we will get to some of the more details of this passage, but we want to look at one thing specifically. It says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and those who dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now this is very interesting. This beast that we know, we're going to realize that there's a change in the policy of this beast. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. But in order for the beast to cause those in the earth and those who dwell on it, how many people are those? That's, that's worldwide, right? Everyone in the earth and all those who dwell on it, it's going to cause them to worship the first beast. Now, how can you cause everyone in the world to do something? I want to ask you a question. Is that something you or I could do? Do you have enough influence with the world to cause everyone to do something? Well, absolutely not. But this is a characteristic that we find of the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, that it also has worldwide influence. Could you agree with that? That the Bible is talking about a nation that arises around the time of 1798. It arises in a relatively unpopulated area. There's no monarchy, and it has a worldwide influence. Now, how many of you think you don't need to speculate too long about who this power is? You see, there's only one nation that can fit this description. Would you agree? That there's only one nation that arises around the time of the late 1700s, that it comes up in a relatively unpopulated area that can fit this description, and this nation is none other than who? The United States of America. Now, this is very clear what the Bible is talking about. That the United States of America is going to be the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. Does it really fit the characteristics that we've seen? Well, absolutely it does. When, does. when does America come up? Well, you can say some people came over in the early 1600s, right? They were working on their Declaration of Independence at what year? 1776, right? We realize that the, the Constitution was signed in 1787, right? We're getting a little too history. We, we have to remember we're on the weekend break, right? We're not in school. But we're realizing that it's a rising to power during the time of the late 1700s. Now, does, the, does, does America arise in a relatively unpopulated area? I mean, when you looked at the New World in comparison with Europe, would you say that it's relatively unpopulated? Absolutely. I mean, you have people here getting hundreds of acres of land. Last time we were in Europe, people are hard to be able to find an apartment in the city, right? It's relatively unpopulated. It's not filled, and you realize that this is exactly fitting that description. Now, does America have any kings? Who's the king of America? We don't have one, right? There's no monarchy. There's no monarchical system. And we also understand, does the United States have worldwide influence? How many of you have realized that people kind of see the United States as the global police of all of the world? If there's a problem, they expect the United States to kind of step in and do something about it, right? And I'm not being political here, but we see that taking place. It has worldwide influence, and also it is a relatively young nation. You think of Rome that was established way back when, and now you have America 2,000 years later rising up. Is it relatively young? Absolutely. Now, what we're going to be looking at is that understanding that this is exactly what matches up with history. And we're going to go through a few slides of this. But there's something interesting to note just about the language of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, notice what it says. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up 
out of the earth. Now, what's really interesting about that idea of coming up out of the earth is obviously it just means that they came up, but the term that it uses is the exact same term that the Bible uses to describe a plant growing. In other words, it doesn't just shoot up overnight, right? But it's this, it comes to power gradually but consistently, and it's constantly rising. And it's really interesting to note that in light of this quote by G.A. Townsend. Notice what he says. It says, the mystery of her coming forth from vacancy, in other words, it wasn't a populated area, right? Comes forth from vacancy, was like a silent seed we grew into a what? An empire. Now, this is just interesting. I'm not, I'm not building a sermon on it, but it is interesting to note that the Bible likens it to the growing of a plant, and so do normal historians. So do secular historians. They say when it comes up, it was just such a small nation at first, but how has it bloomed and blossomed into worldwide influence today? Now, we understand that our forefathers came over. Many of them came to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they came in 1620. And I want to ask you a question. Why did people start coming to America? There were two main things that you could say people were looking for. They were looking for civil and religious freedom. Would you agree with that? Now, some people say they were just looking for a tax break. Now, how many of you would want to ride a boat for months and the risk of losing your life just for a tax break? Now, some of you think taxes are pretty rough. You know, we might need to try that. But maybe that was part of it. Okay, so they want a civil break. But they also wanted what? Religious freedom. They didn't want to have the Church of England telling them how they needed to worship. They wanted to worship to the dictates of their own conscience. They wanted the Bible to be their God, and they didn't want other people telling them how they had to worship. And this is exactly why a na the nation of America comes into place, is because people were looking for liberty. Now notice the inscription that we find. There's a little poem on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. And notice what the poem says, and we get the sense of why it is that people came over here. It says, keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to what? Breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest toss to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You see, the reason why people came to America is because they were looking for freedom. Now, this is exactly what we find in the Declaration of Independence, right? That there was freedom that America was wanting to grant to all of its citizens. And this is why it starts out with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with, uncertainable, uh, or un with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the what? Pursuit of happiness. You see, the United States of America was a nation that came up because they were desiring religious freedom. They were a nation that wanted to have their people be civilly and religiously free. Now, what's very interesting to note is when the Bible describes this beast coming up, how many horns does it say? Well, it says it has two horns, right? Two horns like a lamb. Now, when you think of a lamb in light of Bible prophecy, is there a specific person that comes to mind that's often represented as a lamb? Jesus, right? We see that Jesus is often the one represented as a lamb. Now, it's very interesting when it talks about this power coming up that they might even have a Christ-likeness. In other words, they might even resemble how God talks about political powers enacting. Would you, would you maybe agree with that? 
Notice how is it that Jesus describes how of political and religious powers should interact with each other. Just turn with me briefly. This is a one time. Keep your finger in Revelation 13. But turn with me briefly to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we want to look how does Jesus describe a nation? What are the two things that make it successful? And we're going to realize that this is what many commentators have agreed that these two horns of the lamb represent. But Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And notice what Jesus says here. Now, how many of you have read in the Gospels before that people try to trip up Jesus? Now, can you outsmart God? No. But here they are once again, right? Mark chapter 12, and notice what it says. Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God, or teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not? Notice that he continues on. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image as an inscription is on this? And they said to him, Whose? Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesars the things that are what? Caesars. And unto God the things that are God's. Now you might be saying, what does this tell us about how religious and civil powers are supposed to interact with each other? Jesus says something very interesting here as he's explaining what system works the best. He says there's things that belong to Caesar, right? And of those things that belong to Caesar... Do we give them to God? No, no, no. You give them to Caesar. Now, there's things that belong to God, and do we give those things to Caesar or to the political government? No, no, no. You give those things to God. In other words, the government in the political sense has its role, and God in the religious sense has his role, right? There's supposed to be a separation between two entities, and that's a separation of church and state. Isn't that clearly what Jesus is talking about? He says, you know, whatever Caesar's asking for, do that. But whenever it comes to the things of God, give that to the things of God. Now, what's interesting to note, and many commentators agree with this, is that the two horns on the lamb represent the idea of religious and civil freedom. In other words, the beast that comes up out of Revelation chapter 13, the second beast that comes, is one that would promote freedom, but not just freedom in one way, but religious as well as civil freedom. Now, this is exactly what we see that the United States of America was built on. Would you agree with that? That it was built on a separation of church and state. It was built on having freedom for all of its people. Notice the Constitution. Now, the Constitution, as we reviewed, was signed in 1789. Now, when the Constitution was getting ready to be signed, there were some people who started feeling uncomfortable, thinking, is this Constitution going to take away my rights as a Christian? In other words, is this going to be mandating everything that I have to do? Well, during that time, being a very wise man, George Washington decided to write a letter to this concerned group of people who are concerned about the Constitution. And in the Constitution, sorry, we skipped a slide. 
George Washington decides to write this letter, and he writes it to the Baptist churches in Virginia who are questioning, hey, is the Constitution going to take away my freedom to worship God how I choose? Now notice what George Washington says. Every man conducting himself as a good citizen and being accountable to God alone for his religious opinions ought to be protected in worshiping the deity according to the what? The dictates of the government? Is that what it says? No, no, no. According to the dictates of his own conscience. You see, the reason why the Constitution was put in place was to guard people's religious and civil rights and their freedoms. And we see that this is exactly what happened in the United States Constitution guarantees those rights and guarantees those freedoms to all of its citizens. Now what's interesting is they were so interested in keeping the religious freedom and allowing people to be free religiously that in the Bill of Rights, 1791, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment was written, it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You see, they were so interested in religious freedom that they even wrote amendments that made it explicitly clear that I want there to be a separation of church and state. The government has its place. The church has its place. And we're not to interfere with each other. Would you agree? Now, notice Benjamin Franklin. I don't know how many of you like Benjamin Franklin. I think he's kind of an interesting man. And he writes this quote, very fascinating, and I, I think it's kind of humorous at the same time. Notice what he says. He says, when a religion is good, I conceive it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors are obliged to call for the help of what? Civil power. Tis a sign, I apprehend, of it being a what? A bad one. In other words, he's saying one thing really clear. If a religion's good, it's going to stand on its own. And if God doesn't take care of that religion, and you're supposed to make the government now enforce the things of that religion so people listen to it, I think that's a sure sign that that religion is a what? A bad one. In other words, there's not supposed to be the mingling of the two. You allow people to have the free exercise according to the dictates of their own conscience to worship to the God of their own conscience to the freedom of their own ability. Now, how many of you are thankful that we have that right here in the United States? That we have the ability, no one is forcing us to worship one way or another. We are allowed to open our Bibles freely. We're allowed to go to whatever church we want to. We're allowed to have a free exercise of religion, and this is what the Bible talked about would be happening in the second beast that arises out of Revelation chapter 13. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does the Bible predict that there will be a shift in America? Now, some of you might be thinking, how is it possible that there could ever be a shift in America? How is it possible that the nation who stands for religious and civil freedom would ever shift away from that? Well, we're just looking at the question, does the Bible predict that there will ever be a change of this power, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13? Now, I don't want to give you my own opinion, and this once again is not something that we're doing because we're derogatory against our nation, but is the Bible talking about something? We want to look at the facts as found in Scripture. Notice what Revelation chapter 13 verse 11 says, and we've read this once already, but we're going to go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 13 a little bit more as we look, is there a shift that's prophesied in the book of Revelation about the United States? Notice what it says, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. And it says, And I beheld a beast coming up out of the earth, which we've already looked at, and had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a what? 
Now, this is very interesting. Who is the dragon in Bible prophecy? Well, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9 tells us that it's Satan, the devil. Now, this is kind of odd. How is it that this nation that starts out looking like an innocent lamb begins to act more like what? A dragon. Now, notice the word that it says. It says that this beast would begin to speak like a dragon, or it spoke like a dragon. And I want to ask you a question today. How is it that a nation can speak like a dragon? Or maybe we should even back up a little bit further. How is it that any nation speaks at all? It's through its legislations. Would you agree with that? A nation speaks or makes its rules or its laws through its legislative bodies. And when the Bible is looking at America, it starts to predict that there will be a time when the nation that stood for freedom will start to legislate things that sound more like the dragon than it does like the lamb. Now, the, now some of us would say, say that, and, and, and it's very interesting that you can see a shift taking place over the last few years. And we're going to look at that a little bit. We don't want to point fingers at anyone and say anything bad, but we want to look at the evidence. What does the Bible say about this? How does a nation speak? It speaks through its legislations. Now, notice this isn't the only change that we see taking place, but there's other ones listed here, and notice what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 12 says. It says, And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and those who dwell therein to worship who? The first beast whose deadly wound was what? Healed. Now, we talked about the healing of the deadly wound in the, I think it was last Saturday morning, actually, that we talked about that a little bit. And we realized that the wound started to be healed in 1929 when Mussolini reinstated the Vatican with political power once again. And so we see that healing was taking place. But notice, we want to look specifically, what is the shift that this verse tells us will be coming in the United States? It says it will speak like a dragon, but also it says that it will exercise the authority of the what? First beast. Now, who is the first beast? The Roman Catholic Church. Well, this is interesting. The United States is going to start, what does it say? Exercising the authority that the Roman Catholic Church used to exercise. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit, and that's actually related to the image of the beast that we're going to look at. But notice there's a third characteristic. It says that it causes all of the inhabitants of the earth to do what? To worship God freely? Is that what it says? No, it says that they cause all the inhabitants of the earth to worship the who? The first beast. Now, this is really odd to me. I'm just going to be honest. How is it that the United States, who's so for freedom and religious freedom, is going to shift to where now it's causing all of the world to start worshiping the Roman Catholic Church, right? That's who the first beast is. We're just filling in the dot. Now, this is interesting. This is what the Bible is predicting. This isn't my own interpretation. This is what Scripture is saying, that there's going to be a, a joining up or a union that starts to take place between Protestant America and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, are we going to see this taking place? Do we see it taking place in our lifetime? We're going to be looking into this. Now, notice how it continues on. Notice with me, just, we're going to keep reading in our Bibles just for sake of ease so we can have it on the screen and also see from the Scriptures. Notice how verse 13 continues on. We just read verse 12, and Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 says this. It says, He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. I want to ask you a question. Is a miracle or a sign enough evidence for why we should do something? If someone can perform a great miracle and bring fire down from heaven, should we go along with whatever they say? No, the Bible's very clear, right? To the law and to the testimony, if it speaks not according to this, there's no light in them, right? If it's against the Bible, how true is it? Even Paul, when he's writing to the church of Galatia, he says, hey, even if, if I write a letter to you or another angel from heaven comes saying something different than what you've heard before, are you to believe them? No, he says, don't go along with it. Because God is not going to contradict himself. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we see that this beast power between the first beast and the second beast are going to start working miraculous types of things that cause you to think that following them would really be what's best. Now notice the word in there was deception. Who is Satan trying to deceive? We know that it's him not trying to deceive just the vast secular majority of the world. But he's trying to receive even the elect. Everyone, those who are spiritual, those who are not spiritual. Uh, Matthew chapter 22 verse, or 24 verse 24 tells us that he's trying to deceive the very elect by the signs and the miracles that he's working. We saw this in Revelation chapter 16 that he's going to be doing amazing things so that you think you should follow both the first beast and the second beast. But I want to ask you a question. Are we here today because we want to follow what God says or what man says? What God says, right? That's the only reason we're here. If we wanted to follow what man said, we would go be whatever else we wanted to be. We would go live in the world. But God says very clearly that we want to be people who aren't following miracles. We're not following just the things that we see with our own eyes that look good to us. But we have to be testing it to the Bible. Now notice the characteristics continue on. We, we got a little bit sidetracked, but I think it's very important to note that. Notice the characteristics as it continues. We're picking up again in verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to do what? Make an image to the beast. Now the question is, what is an image to the beast? And we're going to look at that in a second. But it says that he tells them to make an image to the beast. Now this is interesting. Deception is part of the reason why they make this image to the beast, right? They're deceived into doing it. They think that it's a good idea, right? How many of you have been deceived and do it because you think it's a bad idea? No, you, you do it because you think it's what's right for the nation, right? And they start to make an image to the first beast. Now notice that's not all the characteristics, but there's one more characteristic that kind of helps us to understand the change that takes place in America that stands for religious freedom today. Notice verse 15. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15. It says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. We're going to talk, what is that image of the beast? And that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not do what? Worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, this is really ironic. That this fifth characteristic tells us that First, they're going to make an image to the beast. And the nation that once stood for religious freedom is now going to say, unless you go along with what we're saying, what's going to happen? You're going to be killed. At the very least, you're going to be persecuted. Is this what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about America? It's saying that these things are going to be coming. And the question is, is are we ready for those times? I want to ask you a question. It's not how much we know about Bible prophecy, right? But what's the most important thing in our walk with God? relationship with Jesus? Are we ready to stand through the test of time? 
You know, the world can fall apart around us, but God is faithful. He promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us, right? Matthew chapter 28. God is going to be faithful to help us through whatever troubles we go through. But the question is, are we walking close to him? And that should be our most prominent question as we go through this study. Not, oh man, this is terrifying. What's going to happen in the world? But really, am I right with God to be able to stand through the test of time? But notice the Bible predicts that America is going to be in a very different situation than what we are today. And some of you might have said, well, maybe we're looking at that and maybe we're entering into that time already. But it says that it's going to speak more like a dragon than a lamb. It's going to exercise the, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. It's going to cause all of the inhabitants of the, the earth to worship the Roman Catholic Church. It's going to deceive the inhabitants to make an image to the Roman Catholic Church. And it's going to persecute those who don't worship the image to the Roman Catholic Church. Now the question is, what is this image that the Bible is talking about? Now it's an image of who? The Bible tells us that it's an image of the first beast, which is an image of the Catholic Church. Now what is an image? Now that we, we could come up with a bunch of different answers, but what's, if you didn't notice, I tried to help you out a little bit. We actually put an image on the screen. Now, Notice, notice this. Here's the first beast, right? Seven heads, ten horns. And what do you see in the water? It's his image. It's his reflection. In other words, it's an exact mirror or a, a very strict replica of what the first beast looked like. Now what's very interesting to note, if some of you just want some more information on this, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, in talking about an image, tells us that Jesus is the exact image of the Father. That helps us understand, how does the Bible use the word image? Well, how close is Jesus to the Father? Well, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? In other words, when you've seen this image to the beast, you have seen the beast. Now, what is it that made the Roman Catholic Church what it is? What is it that made them so powerful? Well, we realize that the Roman Catholic Church had something that no other nation has ever possessed. It had both civil and religious powers. Were they separated? No, they were combined. You see, the Pope could make an edict religiously and enforce it how? Civilly. There was this idea that he could coerce people into doing whatever he said. And if you don't do it, what's the word that they use for those type of people? You're a heretic. Because you're trying to interpret the Bible for yourself. In other words, you take away the freedom of conscience and you say, this is what you need to do, and if you don't do it, here's the punishment. Now, is that what we were hearing? Right? Those who don't worship this image will do what? They're, they're going to be killed. There's going to be this mingling of church and state. Now, this is exactly what the image of the beast is. It's impossible to say that the, the identity of the Roman Catholic Church, the most prominent portion of that is... It's, non, or it's, it's mingling of church and state. And this image is going to be just an exact replica of what it was back in the Middle Ages. And it's going to be where church and state are so united that they work together to enforce each other's laws. Now, this is really interesting. Notice this quote with me. This is, how many of you would like to write a book called The Ecclesiastical Megalomania, right? That's quite a title. And notice what he says in this book. Dr. John Robbins says the Roman church state, notice the word church state, 
has shown an affinity for civil governments that reflect its own totalitarian and authoritarian structure. Governments made in its own what? Image. You see, the image of Rome is one in which it's fully authoritative, both civilly and religiously. And this image of the beast that's going to be created, that the Bible talks to us about in Revelation chapter 13, is one in which people will be forced, regardless of what they think, by government to carry out the wishes of the Roman Catholic Church, right? It's an image of the first beast. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we're not living in that time today yet. But what we're going to see in history is that we're getting closer to this time. Notice what it tells us in Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. It says he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should what? What's that word? We looked at this word once before, that it's going to be speaking. The image of the beast is going to be speaking. How does a nation speak? through its legislation, right? So we realize that the image of the beast, the combination of church and state, is going to be speaking and doing what? Causing. How is the only way that you can cause someone to do something religiously? In other words, force them to do it. Well, there has to be civil punishment with it, right? So the time is coming when the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine that they teach is going to be enforced that we must follow it as well, and if we don't, you're going to be forced to. As many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I'm thankful that we don't have to worry about any time that we go through. You know, David talks on Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Right? Is that because he's invincible? No, because God is with me. Right? Isn't that what he said? And this is the beautiful picture that we don't have to worry about what's coming in the future. Amen? We can know that this is what the Bible's saying. We can know that this is very clear from Scripture, the things that are going to be transpiring in the very near future, but we have the blessing of knowing that the Lord is there with us. We're going to look at that a little bit as we close. But God is telling us that there's coming a time where civil and religious governments are going to come together to force us to follow some of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. This is the church and state will unite to enforce religious practices. And this is very clear what Revelation chapter 13 is telling us. Now, this next spot that we're looking at is the question of, does the Bible give any indication of events in light of this union? In other words, why is it that this is going to happen? Have you ever wondered, how is it that we can have complete whiplash? We go from religious freedom, and then we go into religious force. How is it that this can happen? Does the Bible give us any indication of the things that are going to lead up to this? Notice Revelation chapter 18. It talks about this a lot, and we're just going to go through it bullet point form. Feel free to read it as long as you want to at home, but just for the sake of time, we're going to go through it a little bit rapidly, but feel free to follow along in your Bibles to verify what we're talking about. Revelation chapter 18, notice what it tells us. Events surrounding this union, number one is it says that there will come a time when the sins have reached to heaven. In other words, there's such lawlessness, right? That's what sin is. How many of you have realized that we're living in a very lawless society? That morality is rapidly declining? And because morality is rapidly declining, some people think we need to do something about that. And the Bible says that this is the very thing, our sins have reached to heaven, this lawlessness is so pronounced, and this is going to be one of the reasons that caused the people to look for an enforcement of church and religious state combined. 
Now it also continues on to say that she has lived luxuriously. I want to ask you a question. Do we live pretty luxuriously here in America? Do we have it pretty well off? We, we spent time in Greece, and we spent time in England, which are nice little places, but in comparison to even those parts of Europe, we have it really nice here. And we realize that this is what the Bible talks about. They're used to living luxuriously, and it continues on. She experiences natural disasters. All right, so there's morale, morality that's, that's crumbling. There's natural disasters that are rising. I don't know if you've looked at the news with just the several earthquakes that have happened in the last week and all the terrible things that are going on, and we see that this increase in natural disaster starts to make people think, how can we have a climate shift, right? How can we make things work that are different so we don't continue to have these things going on? Now, it also tells us the fourth point is that God's judgments begin to fall in the land. Revelation chapter 18, verse 10, we realize that God comes, up, comes to a point where we've reached the fulfillment of our iniquity and God starts to punish people for the way that they've turned away from them, right? Now, why does God punish people? He always does it to bring them back. Have you ever noticed that? God always allows difficult times to come on people so that he can bring them back. And here as God is realizing that the sins of the nations are coming to its paramount height, he says, I have to do something to bring it back. He allows the natural disasters to take place. And you might say, well, how is it that God uses those to bring them back? Well, how, how about the, 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 the history of Israel? Anytime they started to turn away from God, what would God allow them to, what would he have happen to them? Well, they would go into captivity to Egypt. And then they'd come out of that and they'd walk with God and then they'd start to turn away and then they would go into captivity to Babylon. Or they'd go in, and they would come into hard times and God is doing these things. But as you see those judgments, you start to think, how can I get out of this? And number five, her riches have come to nothing. Revelation chapter 18, verse 17. The Bible talks about a time when economics will crumble and will cause people to think, what are we going to do in the mess that we're in? You see, the reason why we're going to be looking at a combination of the secular government with the religious power is because there's going to be a, a spiritual decline, there's natural disasters, there's social chaos, and economic difficulties that lead up to this union. Now, you might say, how is it that a disaster can lead up to this? I just want to give you a very small example, and don't take this example out of context. Just listen to how I'm saying it. September 11, 2001, what happened? The trade towers were hit, right? And we realized that terrorism was just, that was at, our, at its height, right? We were wondering, why is this terrible thing happening? Now, thousands of people died in that, and in the news during that time, what was the major call? It's time to get back to where? To church. It's time to get back to God, right? We need to turn as a nation back to God. Now, is that a bad thing? No, absolutely not. There is nothing bad with realizing the terribleness of this world and saying, I need God. But what the Bible is telling us is that there's going to be such a time, it's going to be so tumultuous in many different capacities, that people are going to say, we need to get back to God as a nation, and instead of just allowing that to happen on a personal free choice, they say we need to enforce laws that will cause us to get back to God. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it ever right to legislate someone's belief? What about if it's a good thing? No. Right? We are, the Constitution of the United States was founded that we could have the freedom to worship God to the dictates of our own conscience, right? I'm not to dictate and to legislate my beliefs regardless of how good they are on anyone else because I might be 
crossing over and causing them to do things that disagree with what they believe. Now, did Jesus, now you might say, well, I thought it was a good idea. I mean, we, we do need to legislate. I want to ask you a question. Did Jesus ever think that was a good idea? When Jesus came to Rome, wouldn't that have been a perfect time for him to say, hey, Rome is in a terrible condition, right? You realize that the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. The collapse of the Roman Empire was actually crumbling at that point. It was starting to fall apart. They weren't able to manage the Christians and the, the, the Jews at the same time, plus the Roman pagans. And they're just going through all this turmoil, and they thought, we need to, get, we need to fix this. Wouldn't that have been a perfect time for Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom and to legislate morality? Well, if God did that type of thing, that would have been a great time. But God doesn't do that, does he? God isn't a God who forces people to worship what he says. He doesn't cause them. He doesn't coerce them. He doesn't twist them, right? God gives freedom of choice. We realize that this is the cause of sin. The reason that God allowed Satan to sin and to fall out of heaven and to even lead other people into sin is because God wanted us to have choice. That we would either worship him by choice and love or by force and coercion. Is that what God wanted? No, God wanted love and not force. But we see that there's coming a time where there will be force to worship according to the dictates of someone else's conscience. Now I want to ask a question. Do we see the wall between church and state crumbling today? Isn't that a good question? I mean, Revelation chapter 13 says that we're going to be seeing these things happening. And it, and it speaks of it prophetically in the future from the point of John. But I want to ask you a question. Do we see the wall between church and state crumbling today? Now, there's a multitude of things that we could look at. You can just turn on the news. But I want to show you some very specific quotes that get to the heart of the issue. In 1960, there was a man by the name of John F. Kennedy. How many of you have heard of John F. Kennedy, right? Yeah, you're a good American. And you've heard of John F. Kennedy, and notice what he says. Now, this is 1960. So we're looking at 55, 56 years ago, but notice what he says. I believe in America where the separation of church and state is what? Absolute. Where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic? Now, was this very fitting for John F. Kennedy? Yes. Should he be Catholic? How to act? And no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners who to vote for. Now, do we see this happening in the world today? Do we see pastors standing up and saying, you need to vote for such and such? Or pastors endorsing presidential candidates? Well, this is very interesting. That's not a separation between church and state, and this is not what Kennedy stood for, but notice he continues on. Where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because of his, his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or from the people who might elect him. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not trying to be political, but how many of you have watched this, this presidential debate that's been happening over the last year? Have you noticed that a lot of it surrounds, now some of you are just thinking, I wish it would just be over, right? But have you noticed that a lot of it surrounds over, are you Christian enough? What religion are you? Are you that, you know, is, it, is that a common enough religion? Is that a, and it, it goes through all these different things and it's becoming almost a religious preference instead of a presidential selection. Now this is interesting. He talks about that's not what should be happening. I believe in America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish where no public official either requests or accepts instruction on public policy from the who. We'll get to that. The, the National Council of Churches or any other ecclesiastical sources. Now, do we see this taking place today? Are people starting to say, hey, what does the Pope say about this? Should I listen? What does what some of the main Protestant leaders, evangelical leaders say about this? Maybe we should listen to them. And we're seeing a great blurring of church and state. 
where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against what? An act against them all. You see, he's saying, I don't want to show religious preference. I want to allow people to do what their conscience is telling them to do. This is what the Constitution is set up for. And this is what he says should be in America. Now I want to ask you a question. Is that what is happening today? Notice this post. This is from Washington Post, April 16, 2001. 41 years later after, after Kennedy. Notice how they write. In 1960, John F. Kennedy went from Washington down to Texas to assure Protestant preachers that he would not obey the Pope. Isn't that what we just read about? In 2001, George Bush came up from Texas to Washington to assure a group of Catholic bishops that he what? Would. Now this is interesting. I thought the Pope and the President, I didn't think that they were supposed to be in cahoots with one another, you know, listening to each other for what they should be doing. But notice we're seeing a shift, even just in 41 years, that there's a shift that takes place. And now it's become so common. All the presidents afterwards, you see them whining and dining with the Pope, trying to understand what they could do for international policy, how it is that they can bring the nation together, just having some religious instruction. And just recently, we saw the visit of the Pope to Philadelphia, right? And then to the Joint House of Congress. Why is the Pope speaking to the Joint House of Congress? It's not because there's exact religious freedom like it used to be, but it's because we're seeing what Revelation 13 foretold starting to unfold before our very eyes. Now notice this quote, and this quote really shocked me when I read it. This is by Chief Justice. Now he was the Chief Justice, um, William Rehnquist. Many of you know him, right? He died in 2005. So this is not an old quote. Notice what he says. He says, the wall of separation between church and state is a metaphor based on what? bad history, and he continues on in the quote to say that it should be frankly and explicitly abandoned. What? The wall between church and state should be frankly and explicitly abandoned? Well, you know, he's just Joe Blow, doesn't really have much to do, right? No, no, no. He's a Supreme Court justice. He's the one making decisions for our country, and he says it really doesn't matter that we need to get rid of church and state division. We need to have unity between the two. Now, these types of things make me a little bit uncomfortable and help us to see, well, maybe Revelation 13 isn't far off. Could it be that God actually knew what he was talking about when the beast would start to speak more like a dragon and less like a lamb? He's disobeying the policy of God where religious things have its own power and religious things have its own power, but now they're being combined. Notice this one, the St. Louis Dispatch. This is from 1991. And it says, as the second century of the Bill of Rights draws to a close, the Supreme Court is redefining what religious liberty will mean in the third century. Now, I don't really like it when people start redefining what religious liberty means. But notice how they continue on to talk. Broadly, the court's new approach helps conventional religions while hurting what? Unconventional ones. Now, what is he really saying? What we're going to be doing is we're going to try to pr protect the majority but hurt the minority. Now I want to ask you a question. What would have happened in the time of Moses or in the time of Noah if the people were there setting up rules and legislation that were to protect the majority and to hurt the minority? Who would have been hurt? Well, God's very people, right? Noah and his family. What would have happened in the time of Jesus 
if religious and uh, civil government were combined to hurt the minority and to help the majority? Well, they would have crucified the Savior. Oh, well, we see that. Now, what's going to happen in the last days if we see that they're trying to hurt the unconventional ones, but helping the conventional? Is this freedom of church and state? No, this is not separation. This is not freedom, but it's helping those who they think will help them in return. Now, what's very interesting, some of you wonder, how is this possible that it can happen? But the Bible is very clear that it will take place. Notice there's many Christians today even thinking that it's their job to start legislating different laws. Notice what it says, Liberty Magazine, 1980. It says, if Christians unite, we can do anything. We can pass any law or any amendment, and that's exactly what we want, intend to do. Now, do you see many Christian evangelical large pastors trying to influence legislation today? No, you would have to be somewhat blind to see that, right? We see it happening all over the world where people are going, and I'm not here to name names, and you can look it up online, just see if it's happening, but that people are going trying to enforce their own religious beliefs on other people by legislating through the law of the land. This is exactly what the Bible said that would happen, that Protestant America would promote the teachings and the authority of the papacy. Now, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 told us something that helps us understand this as well. And it says that he saw one of his heads that as it had been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed. We've talked about that already. And it says, how much of the world marveled and followed the beast? How many? All the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, there's also the caveat that the Bible gives, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? You're either saved, you're right with Jesus, or you're following the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. That's how the Bible describes the last days. Well, do we live in a society where all the world is wondering after the Roman Catholic Church? Notice we've showed you this already. Huffington Post, an article that they just put out in September 24, 2015. Pope Francis wants to be president of the world. Right? He wants to lead global conversation. And people really aren't too troubled by this idea. Sure, some are, but there's others who think, well, it'd be nice to have a religious person in this office. Notice this article. The Pope calls for a God-centered global what? Economy. Now, does this sound like Revelation chapter 13 as you're seeing this? The Bible is saying that there's coming a time where we're shifting away from religious freedom and we're going to religious selection, and it's going to be following the Catholic Church. Now, we see that this is happening just, when was it, 2014? We had t uh, Bishop Tony Palmer. Any of you remember this? Bishop Tony Palmer went to Kenneth Copeland. How many of you know who Kenneth Copeland is? A big, big Sunday church pastor, right? Very, very prominent. And he went out to him, and on behalf of the Pope, he was sent as an ambassador to Kenneth Copeland. Now, Kenneth Copeland was there with a bunch of other evangelical, charismatic leaders. And Tony Palmer was asked to come and speak to these evangelical leaders, even though he's a Catholic. And in this, the, 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 the Pope actually made an appeal for the evangelicals and the Protestants, the charismatics, to come back to the mother church, right? You can watch this. This is not some conspiracy. Watch it on your favorite news source. And you'll see that he makes an appeal for you to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. Why is it? Why is it that evangelicals, Protestants, people who protested the Antichrist would come back? Now, what do you think the response was, positive or negative? Well, you would hope it was negative, but no, they embraced it. They loved the idea. They said, yeah, we need to come back. We need to have unity together. It doesn't matter what we believe. Truth really isn't important as long as we're centered in unity together. Now, can you have unity without truth? Well, you have false unity. You can have shallow unity. 
Jesus, in talking about unity, John chapter 17, says that there's one thing that needs to happen in order to have unity. He says, sanctified by the truth. And his word is truth, is what he continues on to say in John 17, 17. In other words, unity can only be truly founded on the word of God. But here, the Catholic Church is calling people back to unity, back to the church. Now, here's another one just recently. Pope Francis, Catholics and Lutherans will recall the what? The Reformation. Now, I don't know if you get a little bit uncomfortable about this, but I do. 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and said, I'm not following the Roman Catholic Church, even though I love them and all those great things, but I'm rather obey God than man. And now we see that they've said, we need to recall it. They've apologized for that. We need to come back together, and they have a joint worship service together, the Lutherans and the Catholics, to commemorate the abolishment of the Reformation. Now, how many of you think if, if Martin Luther was alive, he might just roll over, right? I mean, he would roll over in his grave if he had any consciousness. Can you believe that the very Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, is now being dissolved? This is something so prominent that we see in America, and we continue on, and we see that there was another historic meeting, and I couldn't find a better picture, but there's the historic meeting between the the highest church leader, the the Russian patriarch, and the Roman Catholic Church. How many of you heard about this, right? This was a a historic meeting. They said they hadn't talked for almost a thousand years, but now the church is calling them back into unity, calling them to come together, and they sign a declaration, and why is it that they would come together after such division? Well, there's immorality in the world. There's people who are hurting over in the Middle East, and we need to come together to solve the problems of the world. Now, I'm all for solving the problems of the world. We need to help together. We need to try to work together. But when we have to sacrifice truth and look to one person to be the authority on the issue, that's when we get uncomfortable. This quote again from the book, Ecclesiastical Megalomania, says, what the Roman church state accomplished on a small scale during the Middle Ages is what it desires to achieve on a global scale in the coming millennium. The Roman church state in the 20th century, however, is an institution recovering from a what? Mortal wound, right? He's understanding what the Bible's talking about. If and when it regains its full power and authority, it will impose a regime more sinister than any the planet has yet seen. I want to ask you a question. Are we getting closer to the day that Revelation chapter 13 is talking about? Are we getting closer to the time where the freedoms that we hold so dear as a society are getting ready to be taken away? Not for any good reason, but for the reason of, well, we need to rally together. We need to work together. Sure, that sounds good. But do we ever legislate what other people should believe? Well, the Bible tells us that it's going to happen. You know, the Bible also gives us a clue of how this is going to be taking place. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16. This will grasp your attention because we studied this last time. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. It says he causes all, both small and great. Who is it that causes it? The image of the beast. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their what? Foreheads. Now this is what we talked about with the mark of the beast, right? That the beast is going to be legislating one specific law. And we looked at that. If you missed that segment, you won't want to forget your CD. Make sure to get that. And it says, And that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is what? 666. Now we looked at this last time and we realized that it's not a mysterious number that's going to be placed on our forehead, but the mark of the beast is the authority that the Catholic Church claims, right? It claims to have changed Sunday as the day of worship, and now it's going to be civil government that starts to enforce these things. Now how easy is it going to be for most of the world to come into line with what the church is teaching? Oh sure, you know, we're, we're used to going to church on Sunday, so it doesn't really matter. But Jesus says that when it's enforced by law, that this will become the mark of the beast. And if you miss that, you'll want to make sure to pick up that lesson. If you have questions about what I'm talking about, make sure to grab the study or grab me afterwards, and we'll make sure to explain it to you. But the Bible tells us that there's a day where freedom will not be here, and that we will be coerced to do what we don't agree with. You know, does this sound like a story anywhere familiar to you? I think we've talked about many times in this seminar that Daniel and Revelation are sister books, right? They, they're related to each other. They're so interconnected. And the things that happen to Daniel on a localized form are things that are going to be happening to us in the book of Revelation on a global scale. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a story of King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make an image, and he made an image of gold. Now, what's really interesting, and this is just interesting, is that the image was... 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, you know, might be 666 connection. I don't know. Maybe it just springs our mind that way. But the, he makes this image, this massive image, and he calls all of the people of the nation to come together and bow down and worship this image. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal with that? You know, they're a bunch of pagans. They can, they can bow down and worship. But there was three Hebrew boys by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We've heard of them before. And as they were there, they said, well, the law that the land is setting up, this image that he's set up and is causing us to listen to and to bow down to, is causing me to violate the law of God. The law of God says that we're not supposed to worship images, right? We're not supposed to bow down to them nor serve them. And here the king's calling them to do it, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there in the midst of all of the people with the image in front of them. Now the question is, are they going to bow? Well, why is it that Nebuchadnezzar is doing this? Nebuchadnezzar started realizing that he's having infractions in his nation. He wants to unite everyone in worship. And so he brings them together. He calls them to worship. And he says, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, and symphony and psaltery with all sorts of other music, at that time, bow down. And as people look out, everyone is bowing from all over the nation, except for who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I don't know why Daniel wasn't there that time. Daniel was there in Daniel chapter 6, so he got his own fair share of fighting the legislation, right? Maybe he was on vacation. I'm not sure. But we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, and they're standing up. Why are they standing? They're standing because they want to follow what God says instead of what man says. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar calls them forward, and he says, hey, I don't know what's going on with you guys, but you need to listen. I'm going to give you one more shot. At the time you hear the sound of the music, I want you to bow down again. Now, what, if, what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? It's kind of interesting. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to be careful to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't need to give any thought to this because we're not going to bow down and worship your image regardless of how many chances you give us. And if you throw us into the burning, fiery furnace, that's fine. Our God can save us out of that. But even if not, we're still not going to bow down. In other words, life wasn't more important than obedience to God. They had a heart that loved Jesus. And Jesus said that if you love me, you do what? You keep my commandments. You're naturally obedient because of love. 
And at this point, they say, Lord, I want to do what's pleasing to you, not what's pleasing or most beneficial for my own life. And they stood up. And you know the beautiful story, the beautiful part of the story is that it doesn't end there. But we're told that they're thrown into the midst of the burning fiery furnace and the people who threw them in died because it was so hot. But the Lord allowed them to be untouched in the midst of this fire. You see, Jesus was also with them in the midst of that fire. How many of you think that Jesus wants to be with us today? Regardless of any problem that we go through, regardless of what the future holds, regardless of what the United States or any other nation decides to do, God wants to be faithful. He wants to be there with us and with his people. But the question that he asked is, are you going to be faithful to him? Are we going to say, Lord, by your grace, only through the indwelling power of your spirit, am I willing to be faithful and to stand up and do what you're calling me to do? I don't want to go with the laws of the land. I don't want to go with what tradition says. But Lord, I want to be faithful to you. And facing a similar crisis, notice what the apostles said. When they were brought into conflict with government, this is what they said. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey who? We ought to obey God rather than man. My question this morning is, how many of you want to make that same commitment? How many of you think it's important for us to make these decisions before the time comes? How many of you realize when you try to make the decision in the heat of the moment that sometimes you're not as faithful as you should have been? But God wants us to be a people that knows what's coming. And he wants us to be a people who say, Lord, by your grace, only through the power of the indwelling spirit, am I willing to walk, to have your law written in my heart, not going along with the ways of this world, but Father, being faithful to you as you call me. Is that your desire this morning? If that's your desire, I want to ask you that you would stand together as we pray. Like the three Hebrew boys stood for their desire to follow Jesus, I would ask that we can stand together and say, Lord, you see us standing. But Lord, most important, you see the feebleness of our hearts. We need the power of Jesus to help us through the times that we're going to be facing. Father in heaven, what a privilege it's been to study your word. Lord, we thank you that you tell us the things that are coming before they happen so that we can draw closer to you and trust in your power to overcome them. Father, you don't want us to be deceived. You don't want us to fall to the image of the beast. You don't want us to go along with the mark of the beast. Father, you want us to be people who are faithful to you. Lord, when you talk about your people in the last days, you say, here are those who have the patience of the saints. Here are those who have the, keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And Lord, that's our desire. We want to be faithful to you. And Lord, we thank you that it's only by your grace and that you can empower us to do this. And regardless of the struggle that we go through in life, we know that Jesus is with us and that you are faithful to see us through. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.